0: In the gym, when we are, we are testing these exercises, what we do is that we really uh, control the t- technique of the performance, the technical performance. Uh, and basically, it means that the activity pattern of the hamstrings will be quite similar between individuals because they are doing the same movement. But what we see in running Uh, or sprinting is that the individual differences are huge. It was really difficult to see any pattern which was true for everyone. Mm. So I cannot say that you activate your biceps femoris more in late swing uh, as compared to like early stance or whatever. Uh, So it was really individual. so basically, it's really hard to replicate in the gym the, these uh, activity patterns.
1: That was Andres Hegi, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here, and we are on episode 185. So, Andres is a final stage PhD student working at the Neuromuscular Research Center at the University of Jyväskylä in Finland. Andres's Ph.D. work focuses on regional and intermuscular hamstring EMG activity in different hamstring exercises and in running. So we've done some awesome shows on hamstring injury prevention in the past, such as with Jake Schuster and J.B. Marin. This is another fantastic addition to this series, as Andres is a wealth of knowledge in all things gym exercises and their effects on hamstrings in a very specific way, And comparing that to how the hamstrings are operating while sprinting and some of the mechanisms or looking at some of the mechanisms by which hamstrings get injured. So whether you're looking at it in terms of injury prevention or performance, this is an amazing show that really helps us to fully comprehend or have a very wide sweeping view of all things that of what the gym is and might not be doing when it comes to hamstring performance and injury prevention, as well as being able to take some real staples of hamstring training such as the Nordic hamstring and really dissect it, do a deep dive into it and understand how changing some variables in that movement has an impact on the mechanics of the whole thing from a muscle tendon perspective, eccentric, um, eccentric loading parameters, and a lot more. So, on the show today, we're going to get into Andres' background as an athlete and researcher, some of the primary mechanisms for a hamstring strain from both a, both a physiological and a biomechanical perspective. We're going to get into dynamics of isometric exercise and muscle tendin, tendon activity, the thoughts on the Nordic hamstring, and what's really going on in terms of the uh, muscle contractions and actions throughout the motion, and when at what point does it really become an eccentric exercise? We're going to talk about the rotational elements of Nordic hamstring training. We're going to talk about various exercises for hamstring health such as the diver, the glider. We're going to talk about how doing various modes of Nordic hamstring training have different physiological effects. We're going to chat about the role of sprinting and injury prevention and we're going to talk about the adductor Finally, we're going to talk about the adductor magnus and its role in the hamstring injury prevention equation. This was a really fantastic episode and just adds to the field of knowledge in preventing hamstring injuries, something that is always important to talk about. All right, that being said, let's get on to the show, episode 185 with Andres Hege. Yeah, so before we get started with a lot of uh, questions on topics I'm really looking forward to talking about, uh, could you share with us a little bit briefly of your background, um, your background as an athlete and, and how you got into research and a little bit of what you're doing right now?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Well, I, I was a football player um, and that's how I got interested in, in hamstrings, basically. And well, I never had the hamstring injury, actually, but uh, that's probably because I finished being a football player when I was around 18 years old, <laughs> so quite early, and, and basically I studied kinesiology, and then after finishing my masters in 2013, I started my PhD in 2016 in uh, Finland, in New and before that I was studying in Hungary. And now I'm really focusing on uh, but the biomechanics, the mechanical function of hamstring muscles.
1: Yeah, it seems like, uh, I think we were mentioning this a little bit before, but it seems like hamstrings are always, hamstring injury is always one of the top, I feel like it's like the top three topics I'm always reading about in sports science, and, and probably rightly so. It's a uh, it's a, a really big issue, and it seems like that a lot of really good studies are coming forward with a lot of really good information on it. I, the, the first question I'd like to ask you is, what are some, so from the work that you've done, uh, from uh, maybe in this being more from a physiological perspective, uh, or biomechanical, if you want to separate those out into physiological and biomechanical, uh, but what are some of the primary reasons for hamstring strain from that perspective?
0: Yeah, so the thing is that uh, hamstrings are really complex and um, especially studying hamstrings in vivo in human, uh, it's uh, very complicated. So probably it's good to move back to some animal models when we try to understand uh, strain injury mechanism. And for example, we can see from from these models that For example, Richard Lieber has a lot of studies and uh, uh, studying strain injury mechanic mechanism and he reported that the magnitude of the fiber stretch is a good predictor of strain injury. And some other studies also show that um, the energy absorption of the muscle is really important. For example, when we stretch the muscle to failure then highly activated muscle absorbs absorbs more energy than less activated or passive muscle. And we know that the uh, hamstrings must absorb a lot of energy in the late swing phase of running. And the same uh, research team of uh, Garrett uh, also found that uh, fatigue has a large uh, component here, uh, so when when the um, force to muscle failure uh, is reduced, then basically uh, there is lower ability to generate force. So less energy is absorbed in in the fatigued muscle. So uh, basically the muscle cannot tolerate the same amount of stretch when it's uh, fatigued. But we have less much less evidence from hamstring muscles. The only thing we know is that the injuries seem to occur in the late swing phase of the running. And in the running cycle, um, from a biomechanics point of view, we have a stretch-shortening cycle in the hamstrings. And in the stretching phase of this stretch-shortening cycle, the muscle must absorb a lot of uh, energy before shortening. And... With What we see with increasing running speed is that the peak muscle tendon force increases in the late, late swing and the muscle tendon unit is stretched at a higher velocity. So basically the negative work done by the muscle must increase to decelerate the shank in the late swing whereby the muscles absorb energy which is returned in the early stance phase. And then... Additionally, with increasing running speed, then the uh, relative importance of this energy absorption increases. So what I want to get to is that there are basically two ways to acutely increase the energy absorbed in the muscle. First, you stretch the muscle more. However, we know that uh, this may increase the risk for uh, strain injury, which is not really good. But another way is to increase the activation of the muscle so that the muscle gets stiffer. And uh, simulation studies also show that uh, increased hamstrings activity decreases the magnitude and rate of fiber stretch in the late swing phase. So basically reducing the amount of fiber or sarcomere stretch, Seems to be an important factor, as well as the capacity to highly activate the muscle. So, and, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, no, I um, I just thought that was interesting that, and and I'll let you sorry, I'll let you continue. The only thought I just had had quickly was almost like a a, a summarizing thought that it's the 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 hamstrings are a muscle that has a capacity for extreme stretch range under under load. And you were saying that the the muscle if we can increase the muscle activation of the hamstrings it it decreases the amount the hamstrings stretch under load when we're sprinting then, just to kind of summarize that
0: yeah exactly
1: yeah I mean, that would would that change the to you guys' knowledge would that change the biomechanics at all like in the sense of how um the shin that shin snaps out uh, as the athlete is moving forward. Or is that, does it, is it really just a physiological occurrence in the way the muscles and tendons interact, kind of independent of biomechanics? Or is that something that you guys have not, you said it was a complicated area. (laughs) And so I know there's going to be a lot of complicated topics here. Do you know if there's a difference or if that, that may impact the biomechanics?
0: Well, uh, that's really hard to say because, um, because the, with fatigue, we cannot, we, what we can see typically is that we have an anterior pelvic tilt, which basically stretches the muscle uh, more. Uh, that's something we, we typically see with, uh, with fatigue. Um, about knee range of motion, I can't recall any studies on that. But it's, uh, I would assume that activation affects muscle mechanics and yeah
1: sure yeah sure thing and I hope I didn't break your train of thought there with where you're going as well and I think the it's interesting you brought up the fatigue and the uh, pelvic tilt that's one of the things that I I'm I'm thinking of uh, in working with multiple athletes not even in running but also even swimming to see how fatigue as soon as the, the the basic trunk and pelvic positions start to change because of uh, fatigue and the way the breathing operates and fatigues, how everything from that outward, the pelvis and the and the breathing cavity outward starts to change, and so I think that I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it would be very easy to isolate things specifically to the hamstring and not the rest of the body with how other levers are changing, and. So I, I think that's, that's interesting. I, 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 hope I didn't, um, break again. I hope I didn't break your train of thought with what you were uh, going for there. Uh, when I kind of interrupted you.
0: No, uh, it's, it's fine. I didn't, you didn't really interrupt. Uh, but, but I wanted to, uh, the, the point is, as you mentioned that, um, like there are several muscles acting here and which affect the kinematics and the stretch of the, the muscle, the stretch of the, the fascicles. And of course it would be the best to see how the muscles actually work during the sprinting. And uh, there is a debate whether the, the fascicles are rather isometric or eccentric. And actually this is how my PhD started because <clears throat> uh, like the laboratory where I work now in Uvascula uh, it's one of the oldest laboratories in uh, ultrasound imaging. We have like four or five ultrasound machines and a lot of experience with uh, with uh, imaging of different muscles. And there was this uh, PhD project uh, where the aim was uh, under the supervision of Neil Cronin and Taya Finney, where the aim was to... Um, we examine fascicle behavior of the biceps moris uh, in different movements, basically, and in different fatigue situations. But the thing is that the, the muscle is so complex and the fascicles are so long. And basically, when you are running, then the muscle works really in a three-dimensional uh, manner that it's really difficult to capture with a, with a two-dimensional method what's happening there, but uh, it's probably uh, quite difficult at this point to see what happens at the fascicle level, and we kind of try to measure some other other things which can uh, potentially affect this fascicle behavior, for example, the activation of the muscle or uh, intermuscular coordination.
1: With uh, I, I like that you mentioned that it's hard to. I like you mentioned like the 3D or the, the three dimensions of the muscle motion versus because I, I think that is a generality with a lot of people. Uh, it's it's easier to put the body into a two dimensional model or just sagittal plane only, and then, um, and as well as the assumption that when you're doing, and, and I'd like to ask get into this too when you're doing a Nordic hamstring that. Well, the body is moving in a, I guess you could say—eccentric manner because you are doing negative work. But what does that? What's going on with the muscle tendon complex at that point? Um, in terms of—is the muscle—is uh, you know—how much is the muscle lengthening, or is the muscle pulling, and is the tendon stretching? And so, I think that was a question that we were going to get into today as well. And I'd love to get into the rotational elements of the muscle uh, work, as you were saying too. Uh, but first, I would like to get to that is when we're doing a movement like a nordic hamstring what uh, what is what do we think is going on there from a muscle perspective is it actually an eccentric exercise is there or is there more isometric contractions in the muscle even though there is negative work being done and how um is you know is there is there some specificity loss potentially between there and what's going on in sprinting
0: Yeah, this is really fascinating and excellent question. So, um, as I mentioned, it's really hard to say what happens at the level of fascicles, and we know that the behavior of the fascicle is not always the same as the behavior of the muscle tendon unit, and it seems eccentric, but uh, at the level of fascicles or muscle fibers, maybe it's not so eccentric, and... Actually, there is there is data on this, um, because uh, Brent Terry and his group, they used a really long ultrasound probe. It was like 10 centimeters uh, to uh, capture fascicle behavior of biceps femoris in Nordic hamstring exercise. And uh, of course, they couldn't get the image, uh, very very good image from all participants, but From many participants, what they could see is that there is actually a shortening behavior of the fascicles first, and then it's kind of isometric, and the eccentric comes only around uh, the peak torque, peak knee flexion torque. So there is a lot of components, component which which is not really eccentric at the fascicle level. Based on their data, which was presented a few years ago, and I hope that they they get to publish this very soon.
1: Yeah, so, so it's only it's only really east centric. Oh, okay, so just to summarize and just so I'm kind of aware of what's going on in a better way. Uh, so, when you start the nordic hamstring, the muscles obviously have to shorten right off the bat initially, right when you start to drop. But yeah. as soon as that happens, then it becomes more of an isometric for the duration until you reach the peak torque or that point that is basically as far as you can go down before you probably start to fall, then it maybe gets eccentric a little bit again.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. Right on. Yeah, that that makes sense to me, and it seems like, but and and like, you, so you were saying before that, and the, in the biceps femoris hamstring, which is the most commonly injured hamstring muscle, we it may not be as linear as we think in in actual sprinting as well. Like it may be, you said there were some rotational factors. Uh, It's hard to study exactly what goes on in that muscle and actually sprinting. Could you expand on on that and specifically some of the rotational elements of of how the hamstring works?
0: Yeah, so if we think about rotation, then um, basically the the lateral hamstrings, the biceps femoris is uh, an external rotator, and the medial hamstrings... Mainly, the semitendinosus is is rather an internal rotator. So, uh, basically, the uh, basically the running technique, and the rotational movements in in sprinting, will also affect most likely how these uh, muscles contribute to sprinting. Yeah. So, uh, is there anything about? Uh, rotation. This is what came into
1: my mind just now. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's that's good with that one. I I, I did want to, in terms of ap- applying it all to, and like the gap between what we see in the lab and then what we're doing in the gym, uh, how critical is it to perform Based based on what you said on the Nordic hamstring exercise, and I think, I, from my understanding, the the metadata and the research is that Nordic hamstrings are effective. Uh, but how what's your take on performing eccentric exercises in the gym how How critical is it to be doing eccentric work versus perhaps uh, isometric work? Um, or, and I don't want to make this too many questions. I have a habit of making things too many questions in one, but I also want to ask about the idea of simply doing high speed sprinting and then regular traditional gym work. Um, so maybe let's start with, um, just how critical is it to perform eccentric exercises in the gym versus, uh, perhaps other, other things in a program?
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. This is a huge, uh, area. Um, because it really depends on what you, what is the, the aim of the training, uh, what you want to achieve, and from any point of view, uh, eccentrics may be beneficial. Like usually, what we want to see is some neural adaptations, like decreasing uh, inhibition uh, with some eccentric training, or from uh, from mechanical or muscle morphological perspective, we may want to, for example, increase vesicle length. But, uh, for example, if I want to go into the motor control part first, uh, we know that we can reach higher force in eccentrics than in concentrics. And the difference compared to uh, isometric is... Uh, like 1.2 to 1. Like, like in well, in vivo, it's about 20% higher uh, the force in eccentrics than uh, in uh, isometric, and interestingly, in vitro we can reach like 80% higher force, and that's most likely because of the inhibition. And there are studies showing that with eccentric training, you can decrease this inhibition. So it means that the, the potential to produce force increases, which means probably means that uh, in, in sprinting, the muscle can be activated more and you can absorb more energy in the late swing phase of running. So from this perspective, I think that uh, eccentrics can help. And uh, and uh, also, like uh, fiber two type uh, type fi- type two fiber fibers seem to uh, undergo uh, more hypertrophy after eccentric only as compared to concentric only exercises. So it may be that the fast muscle fibers are recruited more in eccentrics than in concentrics. And we also know that the uh, stretch shortening cycle is really fast in sprinting and the muscle has to switch on and off really fast. And uh, we know from some studies that the area of the fi- 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 uh, type 2 fibers is related to early rate of force development. So uh, this may be advantages too, probably.
1: Sure. It makes me think uh, some of the talk on the different mechanisms or even looking at something like a Nordic hamstring. And it's like, okay, there's a there's an eccentric component to this, but there's also a really big isometric component to this. It also, it makes me think that there's probably a very good potential for a quote unquote isometric exercises in the weight room of the same type uh, for, for hamstrings, let's just say for hamstrings, just because there's always going to be that shortening phase while the muscle pulls against the tendon even if it's a uh, isometric perhaps i i would imagine that there could be with that in mind there could be a lot of advantages for some isometric work as well uh in the gym just because it isn't like you said is an eccentric really an eccentric and is an isometric really an isometric I, I would think that there's um there's probably a benefit with multiple uh, phases or or positions or phases of muscle contraction when we're in the gym
0: yeah, exactly, but uh, most of the, the research is on, on eccentrics uh, in hamstrings, and especially in Nordic hamstring exercise, uh, even though it's not uh, entirely eccentric, and, you know, the mechanisms behind is, is not really clear. We can see that the number of injuries decreased, but uh, why it decreased, it's not, not super clear, uh, for example, um, we can also see from uh, earlier study of Carl Askling um, applying some exercises at long muscle length, like the diver and glider exercises uh, where the activation of the muscle is very low but you are just working the muscle at the long muscle length and then it was also really effective to reduce the number of injuries although it's a very different movement compared to the nordic hamstring exercise so it's also possible that they work from uh, they attack the problem from different uh sides
1: yeah you'll have to tell me more about that so it's asking the diver and the glider because what you were mentioning there reminded me a little bit about uh, some of the movements that i tend to use a lot called extreme isometrics where it's just uh it's basically a, an isometric held at an extreme joint angle where the muscle is lengthened, and it's not nece- it's not necessarily a high intensity muscle contraction. So uh, for example, um, a lunge where you're where you're in the full fully stretched position at the bottom, but it's not necessarily a high intensity. or you could do this a similar thing with a hamstring with just a, a, a gentle loaded hamstring stretch over a long period of time. And I've found those to be really helpful in preventing injuries. So is that, is that kind of like the diver and the glider? Like you're just in a long, it's like gentle weighted stretching of sorts? Or how could you explain those a little bit better?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so the diver is very similar to a one leg Romanian deadlift, basically. Uh, but you are doing this only with your body weight, body weight. So it's really low load. But the knees are quite extended, and basically you are stretching the hamstrings with a, with a hip flexion. And the glider is also very similar when basically uh, it's a bit more difficult to explain. <laughs>
1: That's okay. <We'll laughs> but try to basically
0: out. you are just doing um, you are just sliding with one leg, with flexing the hip. You're sliding uh, backwards, or, or uh, flexing one hip and extending the other. You are kind of sliding forward and backwards at the same time with your legs. And then you're coming back. So uh, those are the main exercises applied in this um, long-length exercise protocol of, of Askling.
1: Sure. Do you know how long those exercises are done for? Like one or two minutes at a time? Or, or how long do they perform those for
0: um well if I'm correct it's uh it's rather short so uh, it's like uh two three four seconds oh so, okay one so- way and back another way so it's quite short
1: okay interesting so that's a little bit of a contrast to the isometrics that i use but kind of the similar principle um yeah. so
0: but it feels like anything can work <laughs>
1: yeah 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 i mean it's it's as, as complex as the hamstrings are in action it almost seems like there's a lot of it's almost as if all these exercises are improving a different component of the whole equation or something like that i was even thinking with the nordic hamstring itself it was well, the max eccentric lengthening is at that peak torque could you if you could somehow prolong the peak torque portion of that when like that point right before you break um, if you could almost um, like ha- offer support right there to the athlete or something like that for a few seconds you could hold them up a little bit for like two three seconds I wonder if you could get more out of it or it's it's interesting I, I one of the questions I know we were going to talk about and I this I think this is interesting because I The first time I heard of this modification for the Nordic hamstring, it was Brett Contreras talking about doing a Nordic hamstring with flexed hips versus extended hips and that changing a few dynamics of the exercise itself. Uh, So could you uh, share with us a little bit about how does uh, doing a Nordic hamstring with flexed versus extended hips affect the training effect of the movement?
0: Sure. Um, well, in terms of training effect, it's uh, quite difficult to say because we don't have too much evidence. Um, n- no research on that, but uh, at least we have some uh, biomechanical evidence: what happens with uh, with the activation of the muscle, what happens with knee flexion torque when when you are performing these exercises, and I was really lucky to get involved in in this study with uh, JB Maureen and uh, the inventor of uh, of the a, uh, a Nord uh, our oh, it's a Nordic hamstring device.
1: The Nord um, Nordboard?
0: Go, no, not the Nordboard, but uh, it's called oh, okay. Hamtech.
1: Okay. The in,
0: the inventor of the guy is uh, JB JP Giacomo uh, from France, and basically we use used this new machine to. Um, to to set the hip angle in either extended position or 90 degrees flexed position, and we compared uh, basically we we matched the the load between the exercises, so um, the highest load like well it was eccentric one repetition maximum in a range of motion from 90 to 15 degrees, so uh, the advantage of the exercise, the, the machine, is that you can either decrease or increase the load uh, quite easily to uh, match the range of motion between um, exercises and uh, also between individuals. So <clears throat> that's what we talked about. It's not. It maybe it's not only about these centrics, and uh, many studies show that. Uh, working the muscle at a longer length, either isometrically, concentrically, it can help you to uh, prevent injuries, to increase fascicle length. So uh, what we found in this study was that uh, when the hips were flexed to 90 degrees, then we reached a much higher knee flexion torque. And again, the relative loads were matched between the exercises but interestingly, the hamstrings activation was much lower. Hmm. So this actually means that, of course, it's possible that other muscles contributed to, to the movement more. But the difference was huge, which practically means that we have more, first of all, more inhibition in the hamstrings uh, because we couldn't activate that much when the, when the hips were flexed. And also, um, the passive force was higher. So it means that probably, as compared to performing with the extended hips, with flexed hips, you have a more eccentric component. You are stretching the elastic elements more. So that's probably why we have a much higher knee flexion torque there. So basically uh, what I can I can say now is if you want to target your uh, hamstrings at a longer muscle length and if you want to emphasize the eccentric part, then probably it's good to do it with the flex hip as compared to extended hip.
1: I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the freelap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymAware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the gym wear. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox. As the readings you get out of the gym wear go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10" squatter versus a 5'11 point guard so you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units it's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as coach me plus team builder and athlete monitoring so new to the store is the flex which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. so just like the gymware, the flex measures the shape of each rep range of motion total work done eccentric dynamics so, for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So, you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah that that Much. makes a that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I gotta jump in there. I, I was gonna say, as I was trying to put it together in my head, you were saying it was a uh, uh, more knee torque at the knee, but then less hamstring. I was I was thinking, well, it must be the, the because the it's more on the tendon complex, like the lengthened tendon complex and the forward lean. I feel like you could probably go down further quite a bit further uh in that situation before you reach the breaking point with the flex torso and then the but because it was almost more of a a mechanical thing it's almost like you're winding like you're, you're like you're winding up uh like the windlass mechanism in the foot like you're winding up the tendons by leaning forward stretching the hamstring tendons and that's what creates the little bit more the more the knee torque but to me i'm like well that wouldn't that be more similar to running potentially <laughs> because it, it is more specific to that. If you took a picture of the bottom of that movement, it's, pr- it's more like swing phase a little bit because the, the torso relative to the hip is a more similar position to someone actually running than if you're completely extended.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it's, it's more similar to running. And, um, uh... Probably the the adaptations are more favorable, but uh, it's really hard to say at this point.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly, what's going on in there? (laughs) I could I could definitely see that. It it seems that a spectrum of maybe a spectrum of of hip flexion angles could even be good. I I have this like picture in my head of a set. One of the things I'm getting into these days is is variability within a single training set. So maybe even doing like one rep where you're where you're totally straight, another rep where you're a little more yeah. bent forward, another rep a little more bent forward. So you maybe we don't know what's going on entirely, but at least you get the full spectrum of hip flexion and active and passive forces and plus the muscles are probably fatigued. So by the time you're to the fully forward lean, you well you got a lot of passive force going on, but at least there's probably some specificity and and it makes me think a little bit too. I, I do. You, do you guys do anything with um, I, I, like somebody who does the Nordic hamstring and has a lot of anterior pelvic tilt while doing the Nordic hamstring? Because athletes who are, are weak in their hamstrings, I know, tend to do that a lot. Mm. That would probably give you this a similar effect to what you were talking about. From the, it's more passive force. The muscle isn't activating. It's probably more of the hamstring pull on the knee when you're really anteriorly tilted versus. If you're, um, at least when you're trying to do it with your, trying to do it with the body straight and extended, but then the athlete's tilting. And I would imagine in those cases, well, you should just tell them to lean forward then so they stop tilting the pelvis um, or extending the spine. I I hope I'm not overcomplicating it, but does that, does anterior pelvic tilt in the exercise? Do you guys look at that at all?
0: Well, it's um, related to, to hip flexion, basically. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it's very typical that people who are, especially those who are not that strong, they they actually do this anterior pelvic tilt, and with this they can stretch the muscle more, so they can use their elastic components more. They don't need to activate the hamstrings that much. Um, it's it's very typical, but it also happens in in running. So when when you are getting fatigued, then this anterior pelvic tilt comes uh, because you cannot activate the muscle so much anymore, so you cannot uh, absorb that much energy. Uh, and the problem is if you want to sprint fast, then <clears throat> it's uh, the acceleration is coming from the uh, early stance phase of running. But if you can absorb more energy in the late swing, then of course it's uh you can reach higher acceleration in the early swing so it's it's very to 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 reach high performance it's uh it's kind of reasonable to 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 do this anterior pelvic tilt even though it's uh from an injury perspective it's not really good
1: yeah yeah th- to me the the ability of the pelvis to or the idea that when we sprint, it should be with an entirely neutral pelvis and that the hips don't move at all, <laughs> like they yeah. that it's it doesn't work. Like there's there's different torques created from different pelvic positions, and I think it's an important component of looking at the entire equation as well as so what we do in the gym and then the track or the the training pitch and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I totally agree with this,
1: I, Andres. I, I one thing I was. Really looking forward to, well, as well as everything else. But one thing particularly that I saw that you've been doing that really intrigued me was studying basically every hamstring exercise, not every single hamstring exercise you could possibly do in the gym, but you, I know you did work uh, re- looking at a lot of common hamstring training exercises in the gym. And outside of the Nordic hamstring, what, what else in the gym have you found that comes near or may replicate some of the forces seen in sprinting on the hamstring?
0: Yeah, um, well it's, um, <laughs> in terms of forces it's really difficult to say because in other exercises we didn't really measure the actual forces and uh, those were measured mainly at uh, a lower load as compared to the Nordic hamstring exercise. The Nordic hamstring exercise is kind of a maximal load for most individuals uh when we they are performing with body weight only uh, but in the other exercises uh these were performed um at submaximal load but what we did is we measured the activation of the hamstrings how how those ex- exercises activate hamstrings at a 12 repetition maximum load so kind of they are Comparable how how they activate the hamstrings, which exercise activates hamstrings more or less? Is it possible to activate biceps femoris more than semitendinosus and vice versa? And and yeah, there were some uh, exercises like slide leg curl exercise and um, like upright hip extension conic pulley exercise. Uh, Those for example, activated hamstrings quite a lot. But uh, what was really difficult is to activate one of the hamstrings, but not the other. Like, <laughs> it seems like like uh, it's quite challenging to do that. And, um, well, similar to previous studies, we could see that uh, hip extension performed on a Roman chair activates uh, biceps femoris slightly more than semitendinosus, um, and uh, prone leg curl exercise, and Nordic hamstring exercise. They tend to activate semitendinosus more than uh, biceps femoris. But uh, in most of these, we actually just averaged the the whole range of motion in either the eccentric or the concentric part. And let's kind of uh, figure it out later after we published uh, this paper with a lot of exercises that it's probably not the best way. And because what we could see in the Nordic hamstring exercise, when it was performed with with extended hips, then basically throughout the range of motion, the... uh, which muscle was activated, it changed. Basically, at the at the beginning, we had higher activity in the semitendinosus than in the biceps moris. But at the end of the range of motion, close to knee extension, we had higher activity in the biceps moris than in the semitendinosus. So basically, the ratio between the two muscles changes, uh, which kind of makes sense because at... Uh, More extended uh, knee position. The uh, moment arm of the biceps moris is also larger than that of the semitendinosus. So basically, there is a mechanical advantage of that muscle. So it's kind of natural that you will activate more that muscle close to knee extension. But, um, and, and it's really difficult to say how, if these. How these uh, like activation strategies tra- translate into uh, adaptations?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say and ask you is how you said that the at the early range of motion it's semi tend or the medial hamstring on the the end of the range of motion it's biceps femoris or, or lateral hamstring. So how does that compare to a sprint cycle gait? Because I'm thinking about the leg coming through in sprinting and there's there's going to be that twisting of the the tibia a little bit or the leg as we're you're getting into that supination to to step so how how does the do you you guys know how that changes at all in actual sprinting like is it similar to what happens as the leg unfolds in sprinting or is that a little bit different animal or is it just too complex for us to completely have a handle on at this point
0: (laughs) yeah well it's a really important uh, point because uh in the gym when we are we are testing these exercises what we do is that we really uh, control the technique of the performance the technical performance Uh, and basically it means that the activity pattern of the hamstrings will be quite similar between individuals because they are doing the same movement but what we see in running uh, or sprinting is that the individual differences are huge. So uh, we used high-density EMG over the hamstring muscles, which means that uh, we measured from different muscle regions, uh, proximal, middle, distal region of, of the biceps femoris and semitendinosus and see which muscle or which region you activate in different phases of the running stride cycle. But what we could see is that Basically the individual differences were were huge and um, it was really difficult to see any pattern which was true for everyone. Mm. So I cannot say that you activate your biceps femoris more in late swing uh, as compared to like early stance or whatever. Uh, So it was really individual. So basically, it's really hard to replicate in the gym, these uh, activity patterns. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so hard to say anything about running. (laughs) The only thing I can say is we tested different running speeds, and these very unique activity patterns were maintained uh, across running speeds. So... Uh, of course, the activity increased in the hamstrings with increasing running speed, but the relative activity of the muscles or muscle regions remained the same within individuals.
1: I see. When um, With those exercises in the gym, and, and uh, thanks for listing some of those, I was kind of trying to uh, mentally think, uh, well, you said the, the the back extension on the Roman chair is more biceps for Morris, or, uh, and then the... The cone, like the versapoly or cone poly hip extension and the slideboard hamstring curl, those are really good. But those, maybe those are more um, medial hamstring exercises?
0: Um, it was quite similar activity oh, okay. between the two muscle in uh, those. But, but we can also see actually, because um, I forgot to mention uh, the proximal, dist- proximal distal distribution of the EMG activity. Because we can see it's, it's, uh, there are huge differences in uh, act- how you activate different regions of the muscle. And we, what we can see in most exercises is that the activity is the lowest in the proximal region of the biceps femoris. And basically that's where most of the hamstring injuries occur. Mm. So it seems quite challenging to activate that region.
1: Oh, I see.
0: Um, I don't know if it's good or not, but <laughs> that's, that's the
1: case. That's so. That's the biggest discrepancy of the gym is that most of the gym exercises, and I would assume nordics are included in that. It's it's yeah. more the distal, the outside aspect, or the part closer to the toes yeah. than the sprinting. It's the the near that, and yeah, interesting. So that I well, I was going to ask a question about turning your toes in or out in the gym, but it seems like that's that's not it's probably not as important as getting the, the proximal or distal attachments really. Cause it seems like you could, you could make anything in the gym based off what you're saying. It's, we can get um, the, the lateral hamstrings, we can get biceps for more. So it's just, it's hard to get the right part of it. <laughs> uh, do you think like, would the velocity play a role like doing a, has there been studies on doing say a, a back extension? I know there's like reactive back extensions people will do where they go really like on the Roman chair, where they go really fast versus a slower. Does the did you guys account velocity into anything like that, and how it might have changed the activation?
0: Yeah, uh, it's possible that the velocity has some effect, uh, but it's. I mean, it's really hard to say. We didn't mm-hmm. examine this uh, at this point, but uh, it's something to really look, look into. It might be quite uh, important to see.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm yeah, I'm I'm just curious I think about where it almost yeah, it almost like slow versus fast and how things change. Uh, but but since sprinting is the king of specific activation, <laughs> uh I'd like to get before our time's up on the so the role of sprinting itself on injury prevention. One of the things that JB Marin mentioned to me on our last podcast and I think it was actually right at the end and I think it was actually after we stopped recording which It's always said in podcasting, a lot of the best stuff is after you stop recording. And I meant meant to say this in the show notes, but he had said something about how uh, it was was something like Nordic hamstrings and sprinting had uh, both had a positive impact on improving fascicle length. Uh, So there's like these similarities. But then sprinting itself is the it's the most specific thing you can do. So can you tell me a little bit about the role of sprinting in injury prevention and how we should look to utilize that?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, well, well, the thing is that when we are doing the exercises in the gym, then uh, it's easy to increase the load on the on the muscle. But uh, really doing high velocity movements, uh, it's it's like challenging sometimes in those specific positions. And like, as I mentioned, in the gym we like to control things more. And, like, even if I, like, try to replicate the, um, like, the propulsion phase of sprinting uh, with some exercises, uh, the movement is somehow controlled and you lose this individual, this individual, uh, like, movement pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's quite difficult, that part, and, um, it's uh, yes, yeah, as, as I mentioned, it's like the uh, you 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 are training a different uh, point at the force-velocity curve, basically. So it's a very different stimulus for the muscle uh, than than those slow exercises in the gym. So what I I like as a field method is um, resistive sprints, uh, where you kind of learn how to orient the force in the in the right direction to accelerate. Because um, I believe that if you can better apply the force on the ground actively, then you need uh, kind of have to rely less on the uh, stretching of the muscle in the lace wing. And um, I really liked the recent uh, study of uh, Johan Lahti who showed that basically with this uh, applying this uh, resisted sprint it doesn't really change the kinematics of the of the running so it could be quite good for uh, training hamstrings
1: with a resistance mo- more
0: sprint specific uh, training
1: yeah with the resisted sprint are, are we talking uh, resisted like heavy sled acceleration or is this because yeah. I know I, well, I know most of the strains happen in more upright running uh, I so uh, is there, a, an element of that that would apply for upright or is it um, I, I mean I, I know probably late acceleration phase or even an acceleration could certainly happen as well uh, but is there anything that related to upright running with that?
0: Um, <clears throat> well what I was uh, thinking about is that uh, I was talking about the uh, acceleration part even though the hamstrings are rather in get injured at uh, at high speed Uh, But if you kind of learn how to orient the force more, then so you know how to push yourself forward, then kind of you lose less energy. You fatigue later, uh, which can help when you are getting there to the high speed, if it's clear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I do know acceleration mechanics, they'll they'll start to manifest themselves as athletes do move into... Upright running, or the better, the more efficient and effective the acceleration, the better the top end speed can be as a result. So I know they're both, they are linked together. I definitely can see that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
1: I know something that Jake Schuster had said on this podcast before was he had said that. the, the the teams that he has seen in, in all his travels and his in his experience in sports science and sports performance training is the the teams that seem to be hurt the least or have the least hamstring injuries were the ones who incorporated some form of high speed running in their training. Like team team sports like soccer, football, whatever. Um they they, they did maximal velocity sprinting at least I think at least once a week. And that seemed to be a really, really big um, preventer. In hamstring pulls, and based on everything you're saying, that I mean, it's the most specific thing you can possibly do. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. so it definitely makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's uh, I think in terms of sprinting, it's all about how you gradually increase this uh, maximum velocity exposure um, to to minimize the injury risk. So uh, it's probably all about progressive loading there and and also running technique of course so um it's uh, i think jordan mendigucci will come up with some data on this uh quite soon hopefully mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't really know his results but uh, at least i think that he has some some uh results showing that you can actually change uh running technique uh in terms of uh for example pelvic tilt mm-hmm. Um to reduce uh, hamstring injuries, um, well I'm looking forward to this data. My main question yeah. is whether this affects uh, muscle uh, the performance of the sprint, or is it ha- somehow compensated?
1: Yeah, I, I think it'd be very interesting to see like the data with um, if it was somehow possible to see some data points with with when people get hurt in sport like how their posture I don't know I don't know how you get this it had to be really fine-tuned but how their if their posture had gotten worse over the course of playing or something like that to the point where they were they weren't as reciprocal out, out of their anterior pelvic tilt into posterior and back and forth or something like that I I'd be interested to see those types of things I think there's a lot of um,
0: yeah, exactly. I think we need a lot of technical improvement on that side. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because we are we are doing the measurement in the lab mostly. Uh, we are putting a lot of markers on on the body, and uh, mostly the players are running on a treadmill or mm-hmm. maybe overground. <laughs> but uh, what really happens in the game—that's another question—and um, we have very little data on that. So. I hope that some deep learning uh, approach will will get there. Like uh, when you can kind of track the movement of all players uh, and see the kinema- how the kinematics change mm. in in those sprints. Uh, I would be really interested to to see that, and I think we are getting there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting when that comes out for sure. Uh, Andres, last question I have for you. And I, you had written about this a little bit in the article recently, the interview on Simply Faster, but the the adductor magnus. So I, I people have called it the fourth hamstring for talking hamstrings. It's it has a lot of shared actions. Um, what do we need to know anything about this muscle, or is there anything that's that's worth mentioning in terms of uh, preventing a hamstring, its neighbor the hamstring from pulling, or anything in training?
0: Yeah. Um... I really like that muscle because uh, we don't know too much about this muscle. Uh, it's also really complex, uh, but it's really difficult to examine because it's a deep muscle. So for example, I cannot put electrodes over it. Hmm. Uh, mostly with, with the EMG, we are measuring from the sur- surface of the skin. Uh, it's not possible for adductor magnus because it's deeper. So. Uh, But we can also see it has a very complex architecture, and it's a huge muscle. Uh, It's actually the second biggest uh, muscle of the leg. And um, it has a large uh, physiological cross-sectional area, which actually just shows the uh, force production capacity of the muscle. And, for example, it's larger than that of the semimembranosus, which is basically the strongest of the hamstring muscles. Um and it has a lot of functions. Like there is a recent study uh showing with they these guys put uh intramuscular EMG electrodes in different portions of the muscle, uh in proximal distal portions, and what they saw is that uh, the uh the activation was the highest in the in the adductor adductor magnus in uh, hip extension movement, even higher than in hip abduction movement. So it's a very strong hip extensor. So it basically shares this common function with the hamstrings. So it definitely affects the the function of the hamstrings. And also it contributes to, to the rotational movements, like uh, the proximal region rotated externally and the distal region of the uh, muscle rotated uh, internally, so external rotation is similar to biceps moris and internal rotation is similar to uh, semitendinosus or semimembranosus. So basically there are a lot of common functions, so probably this is why we mentioned this muscle as the fourth hamstring. And as I mentioned, it's a huge muscle, so it definitely has a lot to do with with hamstring muscle function. But just s- some of these muscles are really difficult to examine, so I think we need we need to, like, uh, some technical improvements to really examine all the muscles contributing to hamstrings function.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me just how complex the body is with all these different... <laughs> in this position, it does this. In this position, it, it helps here more. It's, it's, it's so complex. Um, but Andres, I, I, I think that's all the time I have for the show today. I, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for being uh, my guest for this show. I really appreciate it. Uh, so thanks again for your time. Appreciate having you on.
0: Thank you very much.
1: All right. That does it for another show. Thanks for tuning in today. We really appreciate it. And that was just a fantastically informative episode on all things hamstring. And I know my knowledge level has definitely leveled up as a result. If you enjoy what we're doing, don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. It would definitely help us out and we would really appreciate it. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They have, a, they have a fantastic blog on all things sports performance and have the best of in each category of sport tech in their online store. From free lap timing system to gym wear, force plates to contact grids, they really have it all. And I would highly recommend checking them out for your sports performance and tech needs. All right. Well, that does it for this week. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.